On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we'll be covering chapter 18 of the Cormoran Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. Welcome back to the bluejacketeer.com podcast for hospital corpsmen. I'm Taylor Larson, and I'll be walking you through this chapter of the Corman Manual. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we'll continue with the hospital corpsman manual, covering chapter 18. Be sure to pay attention, because on the next episode, you'll be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. Sit back, relax, and listen up. This is chapter 18 of the hospital corpsman manual, Pharmacy. Can I just start by saying that I am so incredibly excited to have finally made it to this chapter with you all. Pharmacy is such a huge chapter that can be overwhelming because of the sheer amount of content within. When you read through it for the first time, it feels as if nearly every sentence could be on the test. I remember nearly having a panic attack the first time I looked at it for my HM3 test. But lucky for you all, Blue Jacketeer is here to save the day and make this chapter something that you get to learn like the back of your hand. Now, as much as I love A, hearing myself talk, and B, making these free podcasts for everyone, this knowledge will go in one ear and out the other if you don't put in the work to actually learn and memorize some things. Now, you can do that by either opening the bib and rifling through all the fluff and unnecessary information, or you can go to www.bluejacketeer.com and get tailored help based on what you're struggling with and what you already know. Work smarter, not harder. That's our motto. Actually, it's not, but it should be. I don't actually think we have a motto. Anyway, on to the lesson. Let's start off by discussing some of the specific areas of study within the pharmacology umbrella. The first is pharmacognosy. This is the branch that deals with biological, biochemical, and economic features of natural medication and their constituents. Another is pharmacy, which deals with preparing, dispensing, and the proper use of medications. Posology is the study of dosages of medicines and medications. I remember this one because it starts with P-O-S and pos sounds like dose. Pharmacodynamics is the study of the action or effects of medications on living organisms. Pharmacotherapeutics is the study of medications in the treatment of diseases. Toxicology is the study of poisons. That one's easy to remember. And last, we have therapeutics, which is the science of treating disease by any method that will relieve pain and cure or treat diseases and infections, or even prolong life. Now, one important note about this one is that it doesn't deal exclusively with medications, which is what separates pharmacotherapeutics with simply therapeutics. The chapter then goes into some of the reference materials for medication standards, and it talks about a few, but there's only one that time and time again rears its ugly head on the test, specifically the third class and occasionally the second class exam. It's Remington, The Science and Practice of Pharmacy. It's most widely used in American pharmacies and contains all areas relevant to the art and science of pharmacy. It's known as the Blue Bible of Pharmacology. 
if I were in front of you, I'd be stomping my foot or tapping on the board or screaming at you because you absolutely need to know that. The next area we'll talk about is medication administration. This specifies the quantity and frequency of medication and factors that influence it. A few basics first. The minimum dose is what is needed to produce a therapeutic effect. The maximum dose is the most you can give without poisoning someone, and the toxic dose is the least amount to poison someone. Now, let's talk about the therapeutic dose. It's obviously the amount needed to produce the desired effect, but it's also known as the average dose. This is because it's calculated on an average male, 25 years old, and weighing 150 pounds. Minimum lethal dose is another given definition, but I feel like you can take a guess as to what it is. There are two primary factors that can influence the dosage of a medication. Bonus points if you already knew that they are age and weight. Age is the most common factor. Again, I'm stomping my foot here. When you're calculating a child's dose, Young's rule is used. Apologies for those of you, myself included, who are less than mathematically inclined. Young's rule is the patient's age in years over the patient's age in years plus 12 multiplied by the adult dose. This gives you the child's dose. Now, while age is the most common, weight has the most bearing, especially with peds. The rule for weight calculations for pediatric doses is Clark's rule. This is the patient's weight in pounds over 150 multiplied by the adult dose. The test loves to ask at least one of these. There are more factors that influence dose, so refer to page 18TAC3 or bluejacketeer.com to learn more about these, as I'm going to skip them for the sake of time. We still have a huge amount to cover. Now that we've discussed how to figure out what amount of medication to give, we'll talk about how to actually give it. Oral is the most common method of administering medications. Sublingual medications are placed under the tongue. Buccal medications are administered by being placed between the cheek and gum. Parenteral medications are given by injections. You can give these either subcutaneously, just below the skin, interdermally, within the dermis, intramuscularly, which is into the muscle, or intravenously, directly into the vein. There's also inhalation, which introduces medication to the respiratory system. This has three major types. Vaporization, which changes the medication from a solid to a gas or vapor state by heat. Gas inhalation, or nebulization, which uses compressed gas to turn the medication into a fine spray. Topical medications have either a local or systemic effect. The big difference is that local topical medications aren't absorbed into the bloodstream, while systemic medications are. Some medications could be administered rectally, which can be preferred if the patient's in danger of vomiting or mentally incapable. There are also vaginal medications which are inserted to give a local effect. The six rights are sometimes on the test, but it's such a key part of patient safety I feel it warrants mention. The six rights are right patient, medication, dose, route, time, and documentation.
We've covered quite a bit already, and we're creeping ever closer to discussing actual medications. Before we get there, though, we need to talk about medication classifications and nomenclatures. Without a good understanding of both of these, it'll be really difficult to grasp the medications. There are three medication groups, and they're pretty easy to understand. The first area is general, which means that they're grouped according to the source of the drug, be it animal, vegetable, or mineral. Chemical is simply based on the chemical characteristics, and the therapeutic group is based on their action on the body. Medications normally have three names as well. The chemical name is based on the molecular structure. This one is rarely used and it's extremely complicated. The generic name is typically based on the chemical name. Each drug only has one generic name no matter who is marketing the medication. Take acetaminophen as an example. The brand or trade name is the name the drug is given by the manufacturer and its proprietary. From the acetaminophen example, we can use Tylenol. Now, we'll start in on the medication classes and we'll get into some of the medications that fall under each. Hope you're still with me, it's about to get real. First, astrogens. These cause the skin and mucous membranes to shrink and are used to stop seepage, weeping, or discharge from mucous membranes. Calamine lotion is a great example of this because it should be used directly on blistering or oozing areas of the skin to shrink those membranes and protect the skin. Emollients are the opposite of estrogens, as they make the skin more pliable or soft. These can be in the form of ointments, creams, or lotions. Zinc oxide is a great example of both. It's a white petrolatum with around 20% zinc oxide powder and functions as an emollient with some astrogen properties to relieve chafing. Expectorants and antitussives are likely a key component of an operational Corman's pharmacy. Expectorants help remove secretions or exudates from the trachea, bronchi, and lungs. Antitussives help to suppress the act of coughing. Guaifenesin and codeine phosphate are commonly combined, like in Robitussin, with guaifenesin acting as the expectorant and codeine phosphate as the narcotic antitussive. Nasal decongestants help with the congestion and swelling of mucous membranes. Sudafed is an easy example. It helps to relieve nasal congestion from the common cold, hay fever, and other upper respiratory allergies. Antihistamines counteract the physical symptoms that are caused by, you guessed it, histamines. Histamine promotes some of the reactions that we commonly associate with quote-unquote allergies. An important note about this group of medications is that they'll usually... An important note about this group of medications is that they'll usually cause drowsiness, so make sure to warn your patient about this before they go taking a bunch of Benadryl and try to drive home after a long shift. By the way, there are other uses for Benadryl other than just allergic rhinitis. You can also give it as an active or prophylactic treatment for motion sickness or even as a nighttime sleep aid, though I wouldn't recommend the latter, but it is in the manual so I'll include it here. Antacids are used to fight hyperacidity in the stomach. We know that there is normally a low level of acidity in the stomach, but if the acidity grows, it can cause indigestion, heartburn, or dyspepsia. An extreme acidity in the stomach can lead to diarrhea or even create peptic ulcers. 
since antacids deal with the stomach and kind of change how it can digest things, it can also mess with the patient's ability to metabolize medications. When you give a patient an antacid or see that they're on one, the patient needs to know that they shouldn't take oral medications within two hours of taking the antacid. Milk of magnesia is a great antacid and relieves an upset stomach associated with hyperacidity and duodenal ulcers. Sulfonamides are an important classification of drugs because of their history. We know how important the discovery of penicillins in 1941 was to pharmacology, but sulfonamides were the first effective chemotherapeutic agents to be available in safe dosage ranges, and were the main therapy for bacterial infections in humans prior to discovery of penicillins in what year? Ah, hope you got that right. Shows you're paying attention. Bactrim and Septra are two versions of a mix of trimethoprim and sulfamethoxazole and are great anti-infective medications to give to patients with a urinary tract infection or otitis media. Speaking of penicillin, it's actually our next group of medications. If you're listening to this in the car or taking notes somewhere, go ahead and pause this for a bit and stretch, take a breath, clear your head, use the head, whatever, and we'll continue getting into this chapter. Everyone back? Good. Penicillin is one of the most important antibiotics in all of pharmacology. It's made from penicillium molds found on bread and fruits. The way the drug works is by inhibiting the cell wall synthesis when a bacterial cell is trying to grow. And to boot, it's one of the least toxic antimicrobial agents. There are quite a few drugs that use penicillin, so we'll talk about bicillin and penicillin V potassium, or PenVK. Bicillin is used for syphilis, uh-oh, and respiratory tract infections caused by group A streptococcal bacteria. It gets injected into a large muscle. PenVK treats all kinds of conditions. It's effective for upper respiratory tract infections, otitis media, sinusitis, bacterial endocarditis, and mild staphylococcal infection of the skin and soft tissues. This can be taken as oral tablets and is also available as a powder for making an oral suspension. Continuing our antibiotic trend, let's talk about macrolides. These constitute a large group of bacteriostatic agents that inhibit protein synthesis. Azithromycin is a common macrolide, and it's used for the treatment of community-acquired pneumonia, otitis media, some STIs, and bacterial sinusitis. Our next drug group is antifungals. These can come in a variety of forms, but most Corman will become intimately familiar with the use of topical antifungals for their patients. One of the most popular broad-spectrum antifungals is clotrimazole. It inhibits the growth of pathogenic dermophytes, yeast, and other fungus growth. You can use this to treat tinea pedis, tinea curis, and tinea corporis. Moving along the train of treating really nasty conditions, we'll touch on antiparasitics. Not so fun fact, parasitic infections make up the largest number of chronic disabling diseases that we currently know. Needless to say, if you have a patient with a parasitic infection or infestation, you'll want to be familiar with this drug group. We'll go over three. 
Permethrin is used to treat head lice and crab lice and is also indicated for scabies. Or you could just keep up with your vitamins for the last one. Different strokes, I guess. Metronidazole is used to treat amoebiasis and mabendazole is the go-to drug for pinworm and roundworm infestations. Our next two drug groups, laxatives and diuretics, both help with the elimination of waste from the body. One for, well, posterior and one for anterior. Laxatives will influence the elimination of feces from the colon and rectum. Lactulose is used to treat chronic constipation, but look out for patients that are on this medication to report diarrhea, as it can be a sign of overuse. Bisacodyl is pretty non-toxic and stimulates the colon when it makes contact. Best to use this one before bed, as the softly formed stools will happen 6-12 to 12 hours after administration. Diuretics simply increase the rate of urine formation. If you're familiar with inpatient medications at all, chances are you're familiar with furosemide or Lasix as it's used to treat edema from congestive heart failure, cirrhosis of the liver, and renal disease. Also, hypertension as a result of the edema. Non-narcotic analgesics, antipyretics, and anti-inflammatories. A Corman's bread and butter. Aspirin is the most economical analgesic, antipyretic, and anti-inflammatory agent available. All three wickets in one drug. Acetaminophen is an analgesic and antipyretic, used to relieve pain and fever-related diseases like a cold or the flu. Ibuprofen is used for mild to moderate pain, from headaches to menstrual cramps. Stay away from this one, though, if the patient has GI bleeding or is in the third trimester of their pregnancy. Full disclosure, we're going to skip a few groups for the sake of time and likely your attention span. To get a good look at anything we're passing over in the podcast, head over to our website, bluejacketeer.com, for our expert study tools to help bring up that ever-crucial final multiple score. Skeletal muscle relaxers are a great group of drugs for most musculoskeletal pains. Methocarbamol and cyclobenzaprine can be given to patients that have musculoskeletal pain and are best used with rest and physical therapy to treat the underlying issue. Cardiovascular agents contain two drugs that are crucial to a Corman's pharmacy knowledge. Amyl nitrate treats angina and can be used to prevent erection in adult males after circumcision. And nitroglycerin is used to treat and manage acute or chronic angina pectoris. Vasoconstrictors make the blood vessels constrict, which will raise blood pressure. One example of this is epinephrine. Inhalation of epinephrine can relieve acute bronchial asthma, and injection epinephrine can assist with bronchial asthma attacks and relieves bronchospasms from bronchitis and emphysema. I believe you're familiar with its use in allergic reactions, so we'll skip that one. Vitamins are covered in this section on page 18, tech 21 through 22. Since we've already covered bits of this in other chapters, we won't cover it here, but feel free to reference some pretty comprehensive info in your Corman manual. Local and general anesthetics are the last group of meds that we'll cover in this episode. Nitrous oxide is a common pre-induction agent in dentistry. It's combined with oxygen and general anesthesia, and the patient will likely become really talkative or laugh, begetting the common name laughing gas. 
Propane hydrochloride, or Novocaine, is only given by injection. Lidocaine hydrochloride, or Xylocaine, is the standard that all other anesthetics are compared against. Lidocaine can be combined with epinephrine if you want to get some vasoconstrictive effects in the medicine. Alright, we're past the groups of medications, so now we can move on to preparing different types of medications. Elixirs are aromatic, sweetened solutions that have medicinal substances inside them. Suspensions have three parts, the insoluble material, the drug, a liquid medium, and a suspending agent. The suspending agent keeps the insoluble material, the drug, suspended. When these are being combined or mixed, the process is called reconstitution. Ointments are semi-solid, fatty, or oily preparations of medicine. Suppositories are bodies that will put the medicinal substance into the orifice that it's intended for. Capsules are just gelatin shells that have solid or liquid medication that are taken orally. We're close to the end of this chapter, but I would feel like I left out some truly key information if I didn't hit a few more common test questions. So let's breeze through the rest of this and we'll finish up. So talking about the actual prescriptions, there are two forms to remember. The DOD prescription, DD-1289, and the poly prescription, NAVMED 6710-6. The difference is that the DD-1289 can only have one medication order, and it's the only form that can be used for a controlled medication order. The poly prescription can have up to four prescriptions for a single patient. There's a large block in the center of the DD-1289 that has the key information for the prescription itself, and it has four parts to it. The superscription, RX, means I want the patient to have the following medication. The inscription lists the name and quantity of the medication to be used. If you have any doubt about the medication or the amount that's written here, whoever is filling the prescription should verify the order with the provider. The subscription is next, and it gives directions to the compounder. And the signa is our last part, and this is where the patient instructions go. Don't get this confused, however, because the prescriber's signature has its own section. Pharmacy separates controlled substances by schedules 1 through 5. Schedule, schedule 1 have a high abuse potential with no accepted medical use, like heroin or LSD. Schedule 2 have a high abuse potential and a high dependence liability. This includes narcotics, amphetamines, and barbiturates. These can never be ordered with refills and will need to be filled within seven days of the date originally written. Schedule 3 have less abuse potential than previous schedules and only moderate dependence liability. This schedule includes non-barbiturate sedatives, non-amphetamine stimulants, and meds with a limited amount of certain narcotics. These must be filled within 30 days of the original writing and can be refilled up to five times within six months. Schedule four has, again, less abuse potential with limited dependence liability. Rules are the same as schedules three and five, 30 days to fill and refill up to five times over six months. Schedule 5 have limited abuse potential and are primarily antitussives or antidiarrheals. This concludes our lesson for Chapter 18 of the Hospital Corman Manual. I hope that you are not only able to learn something, but also apply some of this information in the chapter to your daily duties. 
Remember, at Blue Jacketeer, we bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. Don't forget to listen to the audio quiz for this lesson and get your best studying done with our expert study tools at www.bluejacketeer.com. Also, make sure to look for our next lesson where we'll be covering chapter 19 of the Hospital Corpsman Manual. As always, I'm Taylor Larson, reminding you to stay Navy and always keep working for that next rank. Thank you.